The following podcast is entirely a work of fan fiction. It is unofficial, unaffiliated, and unauthorised. Neither the podcast, nor any individual involved in its production, is now, nor has ever been, in any way associated with HBO, Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, or the Song of Ice and Fire book series. The podcast was, is now, and shall always be entirely without profit. Neither the podcast directly, nor its makers indirectly, generate or receive any form of revenue or financial restitution that might otherwise accrue to the rightful copyright holders. The following podcast is entirely a work of fan fiction. We hope you enjoy it. Jamie Lannister trots his horse along the King's Road, the hood of his cloak pulled low over his face. As he approaches the inn at the crossroads, he gradually becomes aware of the crowd camped on either side of the road, growing denser the closer he comes to the inn. Everywhere, dirty and dishevelled common folk gather around miserable little fires, huddling together against the cold. Jamie reads the fear and desperation in their eyes and discreetly slides a glove over his golden hand. He climbs down from his horse and leads it towards the stables, but finds these two overflowing with people. The innkeeper approaches, a crossbow in hand. If you're looking for a bed, going rate is ten gold pieces. Something not on your belly, it cost you another five. Fifteen gold pieces? Are you mad? Twenty if you want to keep that horse in your room. Why would I want to do that? Leave it out here, it's as like as not to end up in someone's stew. I'll just take some bread. And a skin of wine, if you've got it. Boy! As they wait, the innkeep notices Jamie side-eyeing her crossbow. We've had some trouble with bandits passing through. Could be there's some work for you here, if you know how to swing that sword. Just the bread and wine. Thank you. Please yourself. The subject of the innkeep's call emerges from the inn. Hot Pie hands Jamie a skin of wine and a loaf of bread from a sack he carries over his shoulder. Jamie hands the innkeep her coins. She eyes them suspiciously, then returns to the inn. Jamie takes a bite of the bread, then looks at Hot Pie accusingly. It's not good, I oh know. We ran out of salt a week ago, and she makes me add water to the dough so it'll stretch further. Criminal it is. Where are all these people coming from? Everywhere. The Queen's men picked the country dry of food and took it to King's Landing for the war effort. Then the bandits come and burned everything down, because, well, because they're bandits, I suppose. And there's nobody left to stop them. Martells, Freys, Baratheons, Boltons, they're all gone. There's plenty come out of the woodwork to fight over the scraps, though. Half of them's as bad as the bandits, taking whatever they want, forcing men to fight for them and killing them that won't. What do they think they're going to find out here? <sighs> them's from the south is going north, and them's that from north of here is headed south. I try to tell him it's the same everywhere, but nobody listens. Boy! I better get back. Sorry again about the bread. Jamie packs away his bread and wine, climbs back up on his horse, and continues on his way. Daenerys's inner circle watched their queen with anxious expressions. She stands at the fireplace, her back to the room, watching the flames intently. It was hard enough seeing him die, hearing his scream of pain, watching him sink beneath the ice. But to know he's under the Night King's control? The one consolation of death should be a peaceful slumber, free of hardship and pain, surely. We will see that the child is given the peace he deserves, McQueen. Daenerys turns away from the fire. Have you and Sir Jorah completed your survey? I am ready to make my report. And Sir Jorah? I do not know. I have not seen him since we first arrived. 
Your Grace, forgive me, but I had hoped we might discuss this plan. I hoped in vain, Lord Varys. I have made my decision. Varys flashes Tyrion a look of exasperation and entreaty, and receives a beleaguered sigh in reluctant response. I would like it known that I agree with Lord Varys on this point. Without your dragons, we do not stand a chance of holding back the army of the dead. And with my dragons? Little, but not less. It is curious to hear you arguing against the gathering of intelligence when you have always promoted your own as the quality that most recommended you to my service. There are many different kinds of intelligence. I consider mine more of a dry wit, while the kind you have in mind is... The kind that could have alerted us to your brother's march from Casterly Rock and prevented the loss of Highgarden. Your Grace, if I may... Inter- or the kind that could have anticipated Euron Greyjoy's attack and saved our fleet from sinking to the bottom of the narrow sea. Mistakes have been made. I cannot deny that. But we have always provided you with the very best counsel we could. My point exactly. The efficacy of my advisers is limited by the quantity and quality of the information available to them. And lately, your limitations have been all too apparent. The matter is closed. As you say, Your Grace. Having finished their debrief with John, Tormund and Beric depart. As he readies himself to follow, the shadows in the Great Hall shift slightly, and John discovers he's not alone after all. Arya has emerged from the shadows across the room from her brother. Since when did you ride dragons? Since when were you? An expert assassin. Arya practically flinches, her worst fears seemingly confirmed. Broken to Sansa. How much did she tell you? Not much. Some. Enough. Everything I've done, I only did what I had to to survive. That's not true. You could have taken vows in a convent down in Dawn and survived. You could have married a farmhand across the narrow sea and survived. Things happened to Bran to make him who he is now. Things happened to Santa to make her who she is now. Uriah Stark of Winterfell, because that's exactly who you chose to be. You don't know Arya Stark? Not anymore? Yes, I do. I recognise her sword anywhere. They both look down at Needle, where it sits on Arya's hip. Her brother gave it to her. A brother she's missed so much it hurt. He missed you too. Lyanna drills with sword and shield against a man of House Mormont, a circle of soldiers watching her progress. The Lady of Bear Island is a fierce fighter, but the limitations of her slight stature are all too obvious. Jorah quietly joins the onlookers, watching Lyanna struggle to swing her sword. You need a finer blade, my lady. Lyanna waves her drill partner to a stop and considers her steel. My master at arms says I may be small, but there's no reason for my sword to be likewise. Your size is your strength. You can strike quickly and dance away before your larger opponent can find his range. But not if your sword is weighing you down. Liana mulls this over, then dismisses her man with a nod. She walks to the sword rack beside Jorah and begins to test the weight of several smaller blades. If this is what I think it is, let me spare you the indignity of asking. There's no place for you on Bear Island. It's my home. My uncle, your father, served 20 years as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. My mother fought every battle for Rob Stark and died defending him at the Red Wedding. I am the youngest head, man or woman, in the long and proud history of our house. And yet when people hear the name Mormont, they think of you. The Mormont that traded men like cattle. The dishonor and shame you attach to our name will linger for generations, 
So don't stand there and presume to name Bear Island home. That's a privilege you surrendered the day you sold your honor for a bag of silver. It was one mistake. Can I never find forgiveness? Liana settles on a new, lighter blade. She turns to leave, making it clear the conversation is over. I'm only the Lady of Bear Island. Beyond that, it's no concern of mine where you look. Thank you for your advice, cousin. Bran? May I come in? Peering round the door, Tyrion finds Bran sitting in his chair by the fire, his back to Tyrion. He walks around Bran until they are face to face. Bran's eyes are open, but misted over. A raven flies through the black and snowing sky, its eyes similarly misted over. It swoops down, scanning the ground below. Through the bitter winds and driving snow, the army of the undead trudges on. Stretching for more than a mile, the Night King's host advances with a grim, determined gait. Searching in the storm for the source of the ungodly screech, the raven just has time to turn and look into the gaping moor of Viserion before the dragon's jaws snap shut and condemn the bird to darkness. Bran's eyes demist, and he sits forward with a jolt. Don't do that to me. No, Tyrion. I've seen the Night King's army. We have two days until they reach Winterfell. That doesn't leave Jon and Daenerys much time to search. It will be enough. You know. I hope. I'm afraid I can't talk long. I have a search of my own to begin. I hoped you might spare a few moments first to tell me more about these powers of yours. You're not the first curious man from King's Landing to come knocking at my door looking for answers. You are the one I like the most, however. Tyrion receives the compliment with a nod and a smile. Do you remember when you gave me the plans for the custom saddle? So that I might ride a horse even without use of my legs? I do. I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples, bastards, and broken things. A cruel thing to say. Never forget what you are. Wear it like armor, and it can never be used to hurt you. If all my words are to be repeated back to me, I'm going to have to learn to sound less of a pompous ass. Your words were a small cruelty. Your gift, a great kindness. One I fully intend to repay someday. What would you like to know? Everything. Or as much as time allows. You may find some of my stories somewhat difficult to believe. I saw a reanimated corpse for the first time recently. I saw my first dragon not long before that, more than a century after they supposedly went extinct. As we speak, men made of ice march this way at the head of an undead army. When it comes to the believable, I've learned never to underestimate the bounds of my own ignorance. Very well. It all began with the dreams. Jorah crosses the cleared and flattened field beneath Winterfell's northern walls, his distracted eye running appraisingly over the preparations underway. He finds Kono supervising the excavation of a defensive trench, a pair of heavy horse-drawn ploughs modified to purpose, followed by a team of Dothraki with picks and spades, cleaving with difficulty through the frozen ground. Kono, Reokeo. Jorah receives no reply, and realizes Kono's attention is distracted. Nearby, a northern soldier struggles without success to encourage forward progress from a horse harnessed to a wagon load of stone. Despite the Northman's increasingly animated exhortations, the horse adamantly refuses to move. Kono leaves Jorah and approaches the horse and driver. You what? Jorah intercedes to offer a translation. He says, Good horse. Strong horse. Here, no strong. Here, angry. 
Kono calms the horse with one hand and unbuckles and pulls back the harness of the wagon with the other, revealing an angry red channel where the tough leather strap has rubbed the horse's flesh bloody and raw. He gestures for the Northman to inspect the wound. Bloody hell, look at that. Kono removes his thick fur coat and inserts it between the harness and the horse and refastens the buckles. At the slightest urging from Kono, the horse begins its labours once more. I work in the kennels. It's dogs I know, not horses. I see why they call you people horse lords, anyhow. Kono furrows his brow. Glancing at Jorah, the Northman awkwardly but earnestly tries his best to express his gratitude. I am grateful. I am Kono. Good to know you, Kono. The Northman beams with a sense of achievement as he pumps Kono's hand, then hurries after the horse. Kono returns to his team. You're learning the common tongue. Yuri is all this way. Ah, yes, I speak. Be here always, need speak. Always? You're not returning to Essos? Oh, yeah, yeah, Essos. Essos, no. Be here, Westeros. Fight for Khaleesi. No Essos. Here. Distracted once more, Kono walks away from Jorah to deliver fresh instruction to his men. A forgotten and disconsolate Jorah slopes quietly away. The attention of everyone present in the Great Hall is centred upon a large table bearing a map of Winterfell and its surrounds. Daenerys, Tyrion, Grey Worm and Quorno sit around one side of the table. Sansa, Arya, Davos, Tormund, Brienne and Podrick the other. John stands at the table's third side. Bran sits in his chair at the last. John leans close to Davos. I expected Sam to be here. I haven't seen him. Across the table, Daenerys inclines her head to Tyrion. Have you seen Sir Jorah? Not since this afternoon. Daenerys permits herself a brief scowl of displeasure. Let's begin, shall we? Theon, you're back! Lady Sansa, your grace. Your grace. John flashes Daenerys an apology for Theon's faux pas. I am, but I don't come empty-handed. Lady Greyjoy. Was anyone else hoping he meant a couple thousand soldiers? Forgive the intrusion, your grace. It's been a long journey from King's Landing, but I didn't think this should wait. You have news? An offer, actually. Is it the same offer you made to me and Marine? I wish it was, Your Grace. But unfortunately, I lack both the men and the ships to make any great contribution to your cause. I would still like the Iron Islands, though. What would I receive in return for supporting your claim, if not men or ships? My crew and I will see your women and children to White Harbour. If you give me the coin, I will buy a ship. And do what with it? If the stand you're making here fails, the rest of Westeros won't be far behind. If Winterfell falls, I will sail your people somewhere safe. Arya's habitually unreadable face noticeably brightens at this idea. I accept your proposal, and on behalf of my people, I thank you for it. And the Northerners? Will they be joining our little convoy? Sansa looks unconvinced. She meets Theon's gaze. He nods reassuringly. They will. Then it's decided. Make your preparations, Lady Greyjoy. Thank you, Your Grace. Yara and Theon turn to exit. Theon, join us. Surprised, Theon glances at John, who doesn't look best pleased, but diplomatically returns his attention to the map. Theon shifts his gaze to Sansa, receives an encouraging smile. Theon nods to Yara, and she exits, and Theon joins Bran at the table. All right, I've spoken with Grey Worm, and together we've taken stock of our numbers, our arms, and the terrain. Let's start with the good news. Weapons. 
By the time the Night King arrives, we'll have produced enough weapons tipped with dragonglass to equip every soldier in our army. What about the bad news? Numbers. If Bran's estimates are reliable, we're outnumbered at least two to one, not forgetting the Night King himself, an undead dragon, and forty or more white walkers and half a dozen giants. Leave the giants to me. If our dome is any indication, we can expect the whites to advance all at once in one single wave. The White Walkers will stay well back, far away from the fighting and beyond the reach of our dragonglass. And the Night King? We have to assume he'll be riding Viserion. It's not only his most powerful weapon, but it's his best means of assessing our numbers and how we intend to use them. John takes a wooden token in the shape of a dragon and places it on the map at the head of the undead army. A typical army, with typical objectives, would look to break our lines while maintaining their own, secure an advanced position, attack our flanks, kill or capture our command, and ultimately, seize control of our stronghold. And the Night King's army? A little more straightforward. Keep throwing bodies at us until our side is as dead as theirs. Which is why our forces will organise along multiple lines. We'll keep as many men in reserve as we can, while allowing those at the front plenty of opportunities to fall back. If all the others are overrun, the walls of Winterfell will be our last line of defence. And if they make it over the walls? If they make it that far, then the battle is lost, and our only option is as fast a retreat as we can manage. A funereal silence descends. Grey Worm will lead the Unsullied at our centre, the Northern Army will form up on either side, along with the Free Folk, Brienne and Tormund taking command. Sejora will command the cavalry on the left flank, Corno on the right. Overall command will belong to Tyrion. All eyes turn to Tyrion, whose own grow twice their size in surprise. I wasn't aware there were two Tyrions in Winterfell. You're the smartest man I've ever known. In history and the arts, certainly, and the sciences perhaps, but not how to direct an army. Understanding the distinction between tactics and strategy hardly qualifies me for command. You equip yourself well enough for the defence of King's Landing, if I recall correctly. And planned the capture of Gasterly Rock. While my brother was on the other side of the country plundering the bounty of Highgarden, and the day was lost on Blackwater until my father arrived with reinforcements, every one of your commanders has more valuable experience than I. We have experience in spades, but it's all going to be down there in the thick of things. We need someone positioned above it all, someone with a cool head and sharp wits who can anticipate and adapt to the enemy and direct that experience where it can do the most damage. Someone that spent a lifetime fighting from a disadvantage, who can recognise an opening in the defence of a bigger and stronger opponent and strike a killing blow without bearing his own belly any longer than strictly necessary. Or do you really think you'd serve our cause better, hundreds of miles away on the road to White Harbour, with the women and children? We can find a reasonable middle ground, surely. Is there anyone here that doubts Lord Tyrion's competence to command? I only met him a few hours ago. Your Grace, surely you have something to say about this? John has the battlefield experience, and he believes you're up to the task. I'm not going to disagree. Then it's settled. Tyrion will command the field from Winterfell's battlement. What about me? There'll be plenty of room in the wagons for White Harbour. You'll be safe with Lady Greyjoy. You can't be serious. I'm better fighter than any of you. The battlefield is no place for a lady. I don't believe this. You'll let an upjump squire and a fat librarian fight, but send the best soldier you've got to hide away with the women and children. If I was a man... Oh, yeah. They're having fun with you. Of course you're going to be there. Well then. Good. John and I have already discussed how to deploy your particular talents to our greatest advantage. I should have known then that I was about to be ambushed with command. Smartest man I've ever known. What about the terrain? How do we best utilise Winterfell? Well, you're not going to like it. I've liked very little of late. Why should this be any different? Tyrion, as it was your idea, I think you should explain it to Sansa. Thank you, Lord Snow. The one advantage we have over the Night King is that we have control of the field. We need to exploit that advantage, slow their advance, dictate their movement, and keep them within the field of fire from our trebuchets for as long as possible. 
We need walls to create a bottleneck and forward bunkers to provide cover for our archers. All right. The nearest quarry is two days' ride from here. So where are we going to get the stone? From Winterfell herself. The guards' hall, the kitchens, the library. Absolutely not. Sansa. I won't allow you to tear Winterfell apart. They do nothing for us inside the walls. Outside the walls, we can use them to shape the field in our favour. I said no. It can all be rebuilt, Sansa, but only if there's anybody left alive to do it. It's about more than just mortar and stone. This is my home. This has been home to generations of Starks before me. I may only be half a Stark. This was my home, every bit as much as it was yours. I didn't mean... It doesn't matter, Sansa. None of it matters. History, homes, family. If we don't defeat the Night King, then it's as though none of this ever existed. These buildings will provide us the stones we need, and the trees in the Godswood will provide us the hardwood. You want to cut down the Godswood, too? The Weirwood tree is even older than Winterfell. It was here before the Andal sailed to Westeros, before the Wall was built. It was here the last time the White Walkers came south. It didn't survive the long night just to be cut down for kindling now. The wood you've already gathered is fine for arrows and state-line trenches, but it's not strong enough for the trebuchets. We need hardwood, and the next nearest supply is a day's ride past Torrens Square. Then fly your dragon south and fetch it. My dragons are not dogs. They do not play fetch, no matter how big the stick. Are you? This is your home too. You should have a say. Sansa is head of this family. I support whatever decision she makes. Bran? The Weirwood Tree has watched over this family for ten thousand years. My namesake Brandon the Builder raised the castle around it. It is the heart of Winterfell. I thought perhaps you'd seen too much to still be so sentimental. I've seen more of Westeros' history than any man alive, and always, whatever the age, the Weirwoods were there. Winterfell's Weirwood was the very tree the children of the forest used in the ritual that created the Night King. I don't claim to understand all the mysteries of the world, but whatever the answer might be, I do know those trees can get us as close as we might ever come. All eyes turn to Sansa. She studies Bran, shares a silent exchange with Arya. Fine. You can tear it all down. You can cut down the godshood. But the Weirwood tree is not to be touched. The air in Winterfell's forge is hot as the Seven Hells, and the noise twice as cacophonous. Every anvil is occupied, and the small cadre of blacksmiths overseeing two dozen laymen impressed into service by the demands of the Northern War Machine. A second team works to carve the ingots of raw dragonglass into shape, a third to smelt the iron and affix the dragonglass to the freshly crafted weapons. Jorah enters, blanching at the heat that buffets his face and immediately draws a crown of sweat from his scalp. He finds Beric hammering away at a white-hot strip of steel under the critical eye of Gendry. Sir Jorah! Come to watch an old dog learn a new trick. Concentrate! Beric accepts his scolding with a nod and turns his attention back to his labours. From across the room, the hound roars in frustration, his latest attempt at forging a sword shattered in half beneath his hammer. Gendry, fucked another one. Because you keep wailing away at it. How many times do I get to tell you it's not about brute force? Most common folk will tell you that the lords aren't capable of sweating, so rarely do the highborn lower themselves to labour beside their people. I've spent the last year living the brigand's life, fighting every day just to survive. And still, I must confess, it seems a charmed existence next to a single hour stood at this anvil. I've discovered a whole new respect for young Lord Gendry and his smithing skills. I'm flattered, but you're going to have to start all over again if you don't keep out that steel. My apologies, lad. Beric returns to work. Jorah shuffles his feet awkwardly, reluctant yet compelled to carry through on his purpose for seeking out the Lightning Lord. It must have had its moments... Life with the Brotherhood, riding beside your brothers, living off the land, sleeping beneath the stars, fighting for a cause you believed in, a cause that made you feel proud. The reality is far less romantic than the legend, old friend. Every day is a struggle. There's never enough to eat. Your feet are somehow always wet, even in the driest weather. 
and every second person you meet either tries to kill you or sell you out to someone that does. His patience exhausted, Gendry snatches the hammer and tongs from Beric and shoulders him away from the anvil. Just go. Come back when you're ready to put in a shift, my lord. Beric sighs and steps away, wiping his soot-blackened face with the cloth of his sweat-soaked shirt. It's a young man's game, adventuring. Old men like you and me should be sleeping in soft beds beside softer women, with a roof over our heads and a hot meal in our big, unsightly belly. Not something you'll need to worry about, though. Should you survive the war to come, I should think a life at the Queen's right hand would bring you all the comforts you could possibly need in your coming dotage. Hi, you old bear. Jorah manages to summon an unconvincing smile at his friend's solicitous slap on the shoulder, but only the flickering light of the forger's many fires prevent Beric from reading the expression of quiet desperation on Jorah's face. In Tyrion's chambers, Varys and Davos sit on either side of the fire. Tyrion refills their cups from a jug of warmed wine sprinkled with cloves. We've been talking for several hours now, and as delightful as the company is, I'm quickly approaching the age at which a man pays a heavy price for every hour of sleep he foregoes. Do you intend to reach that age right here in this very room? Because if so, I shall need a comfier chair. If I really try, I could just about remember that age. Let's get to the meat of it then, shall we? Daenerys is young, beautiful, and unwed. Jon Snow is young, beautiful, and unwed. The first and second shall resolve themselves in time, but perhaps we can intervene to decide the third in a timelier fashion. You propose a marriage? I do. Assuming we all survive the coming battle... Once Daenerys has overthrown Cersei, the first priority of her reign will be restoring the Seven Kingdoms to a place of peace and harmony. I look forward to it. I always enjoy visiting places I've never been. There will be a period of adjustment as the country acclimates to the new order, I admit. Those that supported our cause will be rewarded their share in the spoils of war, while the lords and ladies that opposed us, well, let's just say we expect there'll be plenty of room for Daenerys to raise her favourites up in the world. The crownlands will pass to Daenerys, while Yara Greyjoy will take her uncle's place as ruler of the Iron Islands, and I shall inherit the Westerlands as Lord of Casterly Rock. The Riverlands will remain with the Tullys, and Robert Arryn confirmed as Lord of the Vale. What about the North? Tyrion and Varys steal a quick glance at one another. The ball is in play. If Daenerys means to marry Jon Snow, then naturally she would need to legitimise him first. As the oldest surviving child of Ned Stark, Winterfell and all of its attendant lands and titles, including Wardenship of the North, will pass to him. I don't need Bran Stark's gift of foresight to tell you. John will never go for any plan that involves us heriting his sister. The titles are just a formality. In practice, nothing very much will change. Sansa will remain Lady of Winterfell, with charge of the day-to-day governance of the North. John will serve as Warden in name only. His place will be at Daenerys' side in King's Landing. But any children Sansa would have will also be excluded from the line of inheritance. Tyrion exchanges a seemingly spontaneous yet strategically prearranged look of frustration with Varys. I can envision a scenario in which all lands and titles revert back to Sansa and her line upon Jon Snow's death. Really? You could convince Daenerys to deny her children control of the North? If it's a necessary sacrifice to ensure the smooth transition to a new world, then yes, I believe I can. Assuming, of course, you are willing to mitigate that sacrifice with a reasonable concession of your own. Davos raises an eyebrow. In return for placing Sansa's rights and claims above those of her own children... Daenerys would only ask that Sansa proclaim, loudly and without equivocation, for all the northern lords to hear that she is in full support of Jon's having bent the knee. Tyrion quickly holds up a hand to forestall Davos's coming interjection. I know you cannot speak for Sansa, but you can bring your influence to bear upon her brother, and if we can settle these terms in principle now, We can hold off on their practice until a later, less uh, apocalyptic date. Tyrion watches closely as Davos digests his proposal. Varys feigns nonchalance, 
studying the wine in his cup. Then it seems, gentlemen, that we have agreed upon a union binding together the largest and the most powerful of the seven kingdoms. A union made all the easier by the happy coincidence that the two parties are actually in love with one another. I believe it was Archmaester Gildane in his Unfinished History of the Targaryen Kings that wrote, Love in a political marriage is like warm furs in a cold brothel. Never essential, always welcome. I can't say I'm familiar with the author nor the experience, but I'm happy to toast to the wisdom of the more worldly. The three men raise their cups and take a long drink. I always suspected the world turned according to the decisions of a handful of men in dimly lit backroom. I never imagined I'd be one of them. It's the people we serve that make the decisions, Sir Davos. We are merely the humble few that do what we can to steer them true. A scholar, a poet, and a smuggler? <laughs> a brain trust for the ages? Or the setup to a bad joke. Only time will tell which. I'll toast to that. They raise their glasses and toast again. Tyrion and Varys, sharing a covert look of satisfaction at a job well done, and a rich return on the false coin with which they traded. Sansa stands alone on the battlements, looking out over the vast camp below. Thousands of tents stretch off into the distance, the sound of several hundred conversations drifting up from their campfires, Your Grace? I hope I'm not disturbing you. Not at all. I trust your chambers are to your liking. Very much so. Thank you. I like to come up here late at night when the rest of the castle is asleep. Everything is so... Still. Sansa nods, a little surprised at this shared sentiment. I used to do the same thing in Marine. I'd look down from the top of the Great Pyramid... And even though I knew there were tens of thousands of people in the streets below, from so high up, it all looked as peaceful as a painting. Seeing so much of the city like that, all contained within a single glance, made everything seem so... Simple. Sansa keeps her gaze focused out over the camp. Daenerys studies her face in profile. Is something on your mind, Lady Stark? Besides the obvious, I mean. You see that tent? The one with the white pine tree? That's the banner of House Mollen. Hollis Mollen is captain of my guards. His little sister, Elise, was born the same day as Arya. When I was angry, I'd tell Arya she and Elise were swapped in the cradle, and that she wasn't really a Stark at all. Mother made me stop after she scolded Arya for getting mud on her best dress, and Arya ran away to be with her real family. I can understand why. There. That's House Glenmore of Rillwater Crossing. We once spent an entire summer in the Rills before Rickon was born. We'd take our buckets down to the shore when the tide was out and search the rock pools for crabs. Rob and Theon would find these little rocks smoothed into balls by the water and convince us they were pellets from slingshots used by the Andals in their wars with the First Men. I think I understand. These are your people. You're afraid of what's going to happen to them. That's the banner of House Malister. Lord Patrick Malister is nephew to Geoffrey Malister, one of the four men that rode south with my uncle Brandon to demand Rhaegar Targaryen return his sister Lyanna. Daenerys's smile drops, and her demeanour chills as she realises where this was all leading. The Mad King burned three of those men alive. The fourth he let live to tell the rest of the North what traitors to the Crown could expect. That was Ethan Glover, great-uncle to Lord Robert Glover. That's his banner there. Ethan was killed by Rhaegar's Kingsguard in Dawn, fighting with my father to free Lyanna from the tower Rhaegar was using as her prison. I think I take your point, Lady Stark. Do you see the blue banner with the three buckets, and next to it the black horse on bronze? They belong to House Wool and House Riswell. Theo Wool and Sir Mark Riswell were killed that day too. Their sons are lords now, Hugo and Roderick. They don't remember their fathers, they were just infants when the rebellion began. After the Mad King murdered my uncle and grandfather and Prince Rhaegar raped and murdered my aunt. Sansa turns to face Daenerys. These are my people, and I'm afraid of what's going to happen to them. Daenerys recognises the resolve flaring in Sansa's eyes. Her face softens, and she takes a step closer to Sansa. The crimes my family committed against yours are... unforgivable. 
I arrived in this country bearing a terrible legacy, and I know it will take time for me to prove to the people of Westeros, and to you, that I am neither my father nor my brother. All I ask for is the chance. Now it's Sansa's turn to read the face looking back at her. Like Daenerys's own a moment ago, Sansa's demeanour softens. John gave you that chance, and you convinced him. So much so that he gave up his crown. I fought for John beyond the wall, and I came here to fight for you too. For the Whirls, the Glenmores, the Glovers, all of them. Daenerys takes Sansa's hand and places it between her own. I want you and I to be allies, Sansa. I want us to be friends. For John's sake, yes, but most importantly, for the sake of the Seven Kingdoms. Together, we could do miraculous things, with me as Queen, and you as my Warden of the North. I would like that very much, Your Grace. Daenerys smiles and joins Sansa in looking out over the parapet. They stand together in silence for a long moment. Finally, she sighs and turns to leave. It's past time I should be in bed. Tomorrow will be a long day. And I don't want to keep John waiting. Daenerys walks away, allowing herself the hint of a smirk once her back is turned. Sansa did not miss this last little act of territory marking and watches Daenerys depart with a frosty glare. As soon as Daenerys is gone, Arya detaches herself from the shadows not five feet from where Daenerys just stood. You shouldn't have tipped your hand like that. Now she knows you don't trust her. She knew that before we'd even met. Now she knows she's won me over. After one conversation, even if she's fool enough to believe that, Tyrion certainly isn't. She'll believe it, because above all else, she believes in herself. And if Tyrion should disagree with her, well, all the better for us. Sansa reaches into her sleeve and pulls out several inches of an off-white handkerchief bordered with lace. The fabric is stained with several faded drops of blood. Sansa absent-mindedly rubs the handkerchief between forefinger and thumb. Queens, kings, princes, give them what they want and you save yourself a lot of pain. You're Lady of Winterfell now, Sansa. I think you can afford a new handkerchief. Sansa looks at the handkerchief as though someone smuggled it into her hand and pushes it back into her sleeve. She nods at Needle on Arya's hip. You have your reminders. I have mine. Jorah sits on a rocky outcrop within sight of Winterfell, the fires of the northern camp speckling the darkness on the castle's far side. The old bear drinks liberally from a wine bottle he cradles like a newborn. How did you find me? Varys looks back over his shoulder. A young girl waits at the edge of the field. Thank you, Lilith. That will be all. Lilith turns and skips away towards a small stone hut and a flock of sheep crowded together against the cold. Is there nowhere a man can escape the prying eyes of your little birds? We all serve her grace as best we know how. Deception and intrigues, plots and whispers, always conspiring from the safety of the shadows. There's no honour in the sort of service that you offer. I'm under no illusions to the contrary. Perhaps that's why I don't feel the need to drink myself insensible. Jorah stares at Varys but decides against the reply and instead swallows his words with a long draught of wine. A good vintage, at least, I hope. Jorah holds out the bottle, studies it with disdain. How many times can you water down wine before the word loses all meaning, I wonder? Tell me, Spider, did you judge me when I served you as King Robert's spy? I did not. Not even when I helped you conspire to murder Daenerys' unborn child. You were neither king nor assassin. You did not give the order, nor did you wield the blade. What a simple life it must be, never having to take responsibility for the things that you've done. Quite the contrary. Kings and queens are rarely called to answer for their sins. It falls to men like me to bear the burden on their behalf. 
Men of honour invariably buckle beneath the weight. Jorah smirks ruefully to himself. You thought you were buying my honour with a royal pardon, but I was trading with false coin. I'd already sold my honour for a bag of silver and the love of a grasping woman. There's nothing left but water for poor Samuel. The tally boy. Leave me in peace, spider. I've no doubt you and your little birds will know it all before long anyway. Varys considers a moment, then departs, leaving Jorah alone with his watered-down wine. Bran sits before the fire. Theon busies himself, stoking the flames. Felt good when I got Yara out of King's Landing and we made it to her ship. I felt better than I had since... Go on, you can say it. Since the day I captured Winterfell, it was the most shameful thing I've ever done. But I remember feeling so proud. I'd outsmarted everyone. I'd taken the great Ned Stark's castle with half a dozen arrows and a handful of men. I was putting Yara's accomplishments to shame. I was going to sail back to Pike and lay your banners at my father's feet. I was going to prove to him... I don't really remember what I was going to prove. Why are you here, Theon? I settled one of my debts when I freed Yara. Now I intend to settle the other. You're here because you think the gods still have your ledger in red. After what Ramsay did to you, I don't think there's a man in the Seven Kingdoms that wouldn't agree you've been justly punished. You've suffered enough to balance the scales for a thousand betrayals. What I did to you... Was cowardly and dishonourable, but I've made my peace with it. Why should you still be defined by it? If it's guilt keeping you here, then you have my leave to go. I absolve you of your crimes against my family. I want to stay, because this is my home. No, it's not. Not really. You were dragged here as a hostage taken from your family when you were still a boy. But your father's rebellion is all but forgotten. Your father is dead, and so is mine. Your bonds of obligation were dissolved a long time ago now. You need my help. If you're going to defeat the Night King... If... We are going to defeat the Night King. It won't be because we have Theon Greyjoy in our ranks. We have plenty of excellent archers and even more below-average swordsmen. If the Night King succeeds here, then it won't be long before the darkness swallows this world whole. Ride south. Buy passage to the Free Cities. Make the most of however much time you have left. Why are you doing this? Why are you pushing me out? Because the time has passed when doing the right thing for the wrong reasons was enough. This war is about more than just the stories that led each of us here. If we're going to defeat the Night King, then our purpose must be exactly as selfless as our cause is. I'm staying because I owe you a debt. And because I feel guilty for what I did. And because this is my home, and I want to defend it. And... and because it's the right thing to do. Bran studies Theon's face. Through the shine of tears, Theon looks right back at him, resolute. Finally, Bran smiles. Good. I'm glad that's settled. Daenerys and Jon lie in bed together, Daenerys's head on Jon's chest. That thing you do with your tongue. What about it? Did someone teach you that? Someone before me? Is that really a conversation that you want to have? I told you about Drogo. And Darius? Dario. I wish his name wasn't the only detail I forgot. Daenerys rolls away. She climbs out of bed and slips into a robe. You should have consulted me before handing Tyrion command. John half smiles to himself, frustrated but not surprised that Daenerys wants to talk business. You said that the military decisions were mine. You said you trusted my experience. It's not your experience I question. Tyrion's recent experience has been a string of mistakes. His brother made a fool of him with Casterly Rock, I'll grant you that, but he was right to counsel you against attacking King's Landing. If something happens and we don't make it back in time, do you trust in Tyrion to lead my army? If all this comes down to just one man on a wall, I don't think it would matter if we left Aegon the Conqueror himself in command. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe we should stay. Maybe you should have listened to Tyrion, you mean. 
John smirks at the irony, but Daenerys is unimpressed. John quickly rolls out of bed and hurries to dress. Daenerys waits until he's decent, then answers the door. Sir Jorah. Khaleesi, I... Jorah sees John fastening his breeches. Anger, hurt and resignation pass over his face in quick succession. I need to speak with you. Alone. Of course. John nods to Jorah as he slips past him and makes his escape down the corridor. I expected you reported our strategy meeting this evening. Daenerys notices the slight stagger to Jorah's gait, recognises the smell of alcohol. Is everything all right, Sir Jorah? You look... out of sorts. Forgive the intrusion, Khaleesi, especially at this late hour. There's something you need to know. The preceding podcast was entirely a work of fan fiction. It was unofficial, unaffiliated, and unauthorised. Neither the podcast, nor any individual involved in its production, is now, nor has ever been, in any way associated with HBO, Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, or the Song of Ice and Fire book series. The podcast was, is now, and shall always be, entirely without profit. Neither the podcast directly, nor its makers indirectly, generate or receive any form of revenue or financial restitution that might otherwise accrue to the rightful copyright holders. The preceding podcast was entirely a work of fan fiction. We hope you enjoyed it.